0: Let's pray together, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for breathing forth the words of eternal life, and we confess to you that without the scripture, without your divine and holy word, that we are lost in the dark, but we thank you that you have explained things in a way we can understand. You've given us your holy word, the Bible, so that we would understand who we are, who you are, that we would come to know your son, the living word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to receive the truth of your word this morning with faith and love, lay it up in our heart and practice it in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please turn to Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11, and this morning we're going to look at the first petition of what's called the Lord's Prayer, It really should be called the Disciples' Prayer. The the Lord's Prayer is in John 17. Um, This is the Disciples' Prayer, this is what we pray, what Jesus taught us to pray. And so we're going to read verse 1 and just the first half of verse 2, because the second petition is also contained in verse 2. Luke 11, verse 1, this is God's Word. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. May God bless the reading of his holy word. When scripture speaks of a person's name, it's referring to the reputation in the minds of others that that individual possesses. When we speak of a person's name, their, their good name, or you've, you've heard that person's name, that means you've heard their reputation, or they, they have a good reputation or a bad reputation. The scripture says in Proverbs 22 1 that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. It's good to have a good reputation. Better to have that than to have lots of money. Proverbs ten seven: The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Ecclesiastes 7, 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. The elder in the church is supposed to be blameless, it says. That's supposed to be what his name is. He has a blameless name, 1 Timothy 3, 2. They're to have a good name, a good testimony to those who are outside, lest they fall into reproach in the snare of the devil, it says in 1 Timothy 3, 7. This means that they have a good name. They are well thought of and well regarded by other people. And when people bring up that person, people think and speak well of them because they are godly people who exercise self-control, who pursue godliness in their vocations, in their homes, in their families, in their doctrine, and in their theology. And in every way they order their life, they have a good name. John the Baptist's parents, for example, Zacharias and Elizabeth, are described by the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 1 verse 6 as being both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. They both had a good name in that regard. That's the kind of name that we all want to strive to have. We want to be righteous. We want to be thought of as walking in the commandments of God. John the Baptist came from godly stock and from a family with a good name before God and before their community. Remember the book of Job. Job is described in similar terms as a blameless and upright man. God himself described Job to Satan as a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. And having this reputation in the sight of others is, as God's word teaches us, it's more and more valuable than great riches. It's better than precious ointment. The ninth commandment, which is, you shall not bear false witness Against your neighbor requires a lot more than simply not lying. In fact, I believe the answers to the questions, what are the duties and what are the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment, and the larger catechism, they're the longest answers in the whole catechism. In fact, I told my kids, if you memorize just those two questions and answers, I'll give you each 20 bucks. And no one's taken me up on it yet. (laughs) Far from merely prohibiting lying and requiring that we tell the truth, the commandment requires that we preserve and promote the good name of our neighbor, and that we preserve and promote our own good name. We're also to have a charitable esteem toward our neighbor, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name. When someone has a good reputation, has a good name, they're known as godly, we're not to be envious of that. We're not to despise that. We are to have a charitable frame of mind always toward others. We're forbidden in the ninth commandment to prejudice the truth or prejudice the good name of our neighbors. Now, what does that word prejudice mean when it's used as a verb like that? It means to obstruct or injure by undue bias. Our opinions and judgments must be based upon truth and facts when it comes to the way in which we think about ourselves and others. We are to regard people's names and to value having a good name and never rejoice at someone's name being hurt. Now, don't get me wrong here. God's word tells us clearly that we also have the duty to make very negative judgments about people at times. And I want you to encourage you, always err on the side of charity and do all that you, you can to suspend negative judgments until they're necessary. Think well of everyone unless you have really good reasons not to. But the scriptures do require that we recognize certain people as fools, the wicked, worthless persons, sluggards, talebearers, gossips, and the like. And those are all Bad names, not just name calling, but those are a bad reputation if someone is known by those things. But it's not sinful to recognize people at times being rightly labeled with those, even if it's us ourselves. To be known as Zacharias, as Elizabeth, and Job is what we all aspire to. We want to be known as blameless, upright, fearing God, shunning evil. That is the name that we want people to have about us. The memory of such people will be blessed, it says in the proverb that we just read. Their good name is better than great riches. A person's name is, in a sense, their most treasured possession. And that is why it is so serious to lie about someone. God sees that as a very serious sin. Especially when we lie about him. When our lives lie about him and his character. When a person's name or is hurt or ruined by lies, God takes notice of that. Jesus even promised his disciples that, as a matter of fact, they would be lied about. He told them, when people lie about you, when they despise you because you're godly, you're blessed. He said, blessed are you, Matthew 5.11, when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. People will want your name to be destroyed because you're a Christian, because you're godly. For the sake of righteousness, our names will be slandered because we do what's right. Jesus says, When that happens, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I was recently introduced to an incredible piano composer named Charles Valentine Alcon. Anyone here ever heard of him? No one? No one? Wow. Charles Valentine Alcon. He lived next door to someone that I bet you all have heard of, Frederick Chopin. I don't hear ever heard of Chopin. Okay. <clears throat> Most people into piano music in particular and classical in general, they know all about Chopin, but not very many have heard of Alcon. And numerous professional pianists in recent years have re- discovered and tried to resurrect his music, and I'm really glad they've done so. It's beautiful stuff. It's very unique. It's very unusual, and it's also terrifyingly difficult <clears throat> to play. And that's one of the reasons that it fell out of favor is nobody could play it. Again and again, though, the pro-pianists who have discovered Khan's music, they say, when you listen to them interviewed, they say, we want his name to be known for how great he was. This guy has never gotten the due that his name deserves. So we want the name of Khan to be held up with the Chopins and the Franz Liszt and the Beethovens of the world because he was an amazing composer and pianist in his own right. And their project is that they want to give proper honor and respect to his name. The same is often done with geniuses in all sorts of fields whose, whose names were, for one reason or another, forgotten from the memories of men. And they get rediscovered and people feel a sense of burden. These guys' names or this woman's name needs to be remembered, needs to be honored. And it's not honored the way it should be. We have a burden to see that happen for our fellow man. To honor their names and make their names known to the masses, it seems right and fitting because of their achievements and their talents, which have not gotten proper honor and respect. And people feel a sense of obligation to see that people are remembered correctly, properly, for what they achieved and for the type of people that they were if no one knows about them. Now listen, there is nothing in the universe higher or more important than the name of God. Nothing. His name is more important than my life, than in your life. There's nothing more important than the sanctity of God's name. We were blessed to hear The professions of faith, the session was of six dear brothers and sisters who are now communicant members of our church in the days leading up to last Sunday. But I want to remind everyone, as I reminded them when they made that profession before the church, it's a big deal to tell people you're a follower of Christ. And it raises the bar on your conduct to the highest level possible. If we would be known as the followers of Christ, the name of Christ is now at stake in the way that we do everything in life. Our marriages, our work ethic, our management of money, relationships with others at church, relationships with our children, siblings, everything. The glorious, high, lifted up name of Almighty God is now either glorified or debased by us, those who profess to know him through Christ. And while our reputations are important to us and the reputations of our neighbors must be important to us, nothing is more important than the reputation that our lives subject the name of God to. The Bible teaches us clearly from front to back that the chief purpose of our existence is to glorify God. And everybody knows that. If you've gone to a Presbyterian church, everyone knows the first catechism question. There's a sense in which it's the most important one. Glorify God. Think about that verb and the object. Glorify God. A verb and a direct object. And the Hebrew verb for glorify is kabe, which means to make heavy, to make significant, Man is said to have been created with kavod, with significance, with weight. We we are weighty in our glory, in our significance. We who have been created by God with glory ourselves are to devote the entirety of our existence to the glorification of God. And how could we not do that? He created us. He made you. The old hundred, the old Psalm 100 has the people of God singing the most obvious and wondrous of truths. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. Now what could be more obvious? And yet the people of God have sung that for centuries. Glorify God. Paul's stinging indictment, guided by the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 1, his indictment against the human race, God's anger against the human race, is primarily because it doesn't do that. It doesn't glorify God or thank Him for everything that it has and is. Romans one twenty-one: because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. The attitude of the heart of every believer is summarized in the wonderful prayers that we see throughout the Psalms. Listen to just a few of these. Psalm 86, verse 12, I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. Psalm 87, 3, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Psalm 34, three, o magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Psalm 89, 16, In your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted. And one last one, Psalm one forty eight thirteen. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. Remember the Tower of Babel? The Tower of Babel? God permanently halted mankind's ability to do anything he purposed to do by thoroughly confusing their languages and forcing them to spread out upon the earth as he had commanded them. But the reason they built that huge tower... They all set it together to make a name for ourselves. And that's what people do. That's what we still do at times. Even as Christians, we want to make a name for ourselves. For so many people today, making their name great continues to be the purpose for which they do everything. But what a futile project. What a waste of time. What do we have that we did not receive from God? It is God who made us, not we ourselves. You exist to glorify him, to obey him, that the world would know there is a God who is real, who redeems people. Israel's first king, Saul. By God's providence and design, Saul's reign was a disaster. Saul started out well, but his obsession with himself and with his own name and his own glory, it ruined his entire rule. When Saul failed to destroy the Amalekites, as God had commanded him to do, God, through Samuel, told him in 1 Samuel fifteen twenty seven, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And Saul's answer is evil because of its hypocrisy. In response to that, he says in 1 Samuel 15, 30, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may worship the Lord your God. These are not the words of true repentance, not true sorrow for sin. I have sinned, but honor me, Samuel, in front of everybody. I don't want to be humiliated or embarrassed. Honor me in front of the elders of the people, and then I'll go back with you and we can worship the Lord, not my God, but the Lord your God. Not the words of true repentance or true sorrow for sin. Before Samuel went to give Saul the news that God was removing him as king, Samuel was informed about something else that Saul had done. In 1 Samuel 15, 12, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed, he set up a monument for himself. Saul went to Carmel and built a monument of himself. If you ever get a chance, at some point I would love to do this, go to Egypt to see all the monuments, but what are all those monuments? They're all monuments to people. It's all those pharaohs saying, look how great I am. Here's a statue of me. Here's a whole bunch of statues of me. All over the place. Pyramids, temples, statues all over. You're seeing monuments to people. Saul was no different, sadly. But the heart of the true child of God, the the forgiven, the justified, the adopted son or daughter of of God is going to have a zeal to see that Christ is exalted and that his holy name is hallowed in the world. We preach the gospel today because God must have more worshipers to glorify his name. It is not right that so many people are stuck in idolatry, that they're slaves of every kind of sin. God must have more worshipers. God's name needs to be glorified. The first petition of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples is, Hallowed be your name. Jesus is teaching his disciples, teaching us, Every time you pray, the first priority of every single prayer is for you to engage in private worship of the name of God. When you pray, Our Father, first things first. The first thing is always the most important. Hallowed be your name. The beating heart of the redeemed sinner addressing the triune God of the universe who by the word of his power made all things including them out of nothing in the space of six days is first and foremost to worship and hallow his holy name. Prayer is an act, first and foremost, of worship. And that's why in Scripture you don't see prayer offered to anything or anyone other than God. And that verb that's translated as hallowed, it means to treat as holy, to treat with reverence. May God's name be treated as holy, not only by me, but by the whole world. The Christian in prayer recognizes first that no sin, no darkness, no evil, no hypocrisy must ever be associated with the name of our God and Father. His name is to be regarded as holy and must be represented by children who also have great determination to live holy lives. That's always what's at stake with the commandments of God and with the life that we live as Christians. The most important part is not I might have to deal with consequences in a temporal sense if I sin. The most important matter is that God looks bad when I sin. It makes Christ look bad when I sin. There's even a commandment regarding the proper treatment of the name of God. Commandment number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then it's the first commandment that has an annexation to it. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. Now what does it require? The holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. What does that commandment forbid? All profaning or abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. Prayer begins with that which always outweighs all other things, all other problems, all other agendas, and everything else going on in your life, even holy and good things that you need to pray for when you pray. It outweighs all of it, that you worship God first and foremost. In fact, we do missions. We try to win people to Christ because we want them to be worshipers of God too. We want them to do what we do, to ascribe greatness to the name of God. The third commandment has something attached to it. As I said there, God in giving that commandment added, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. Now, why does he add that to it? What that means is, however the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from men, yet the Lord our God will not allow them to escape his righteous judgment. That ought to chill the souls of the so-called prosperity preachers, along with all the Joel Osteens of the world and fake miracle workers of our time. Every single time they take the blessed name of Christ on their lips and go on to preach and teach a false gospel and give people false hopes of mountains of money and fancy cars, they may escape judgment from men, but barring their repentance, God will not allow them to go on blaspheming his name apart from judgment. For everyone who names the name of Christ as their king, we must take care that we represent him well in this world before others. That's always to be on our hearts and minds. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are now his representatives in the world. So when people see us, they're to see wisdom, self-control, grace, and mercy. We represent Christ to those who are outside. His name is now associated with us. And that is the highest honor that we could possibly have. Greater than any award bestowed by any country, any organization in this world. In fact, the ironic blessing that I pronounce at the end of every service to you That has a verse that follows it. Listen to the the blessing. You'll recognize it. The Lord bless you and keep you. Number 624. The Lord bless you and keep you. It's actually Yahweh. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And that's the end of the blessing. The very next verse says, so they shall put my name upon the children of Israel and I will bless them. When that's pronounced over you, the God of heaven and earth is now associating his name with you. That blessing read over you by a called and ordained servant of the word, he is putting his name upon you. He's associating himself with you, with us. Is that not the highest honor you could ever have? And is there anything more important than that in the whole universe? And it is the sacred covenant name of God that's used in that blessing. Yahweh, bless you and keep you. Yahweh, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh, lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. And this is God through his ministers putting his name upon his people. For you who have repented and believed the gospel, that you're justified before God by Christ's shed blood and righteousness alone, received by faith alone, completely apart from any works that you do, you are not orphans any longer. You are not the dead and sin children of the devil you once were. You are not at war with God anymore. You are not God's enemies. God delights now to have his holy name put upon you. The name of his son put upon you. You're no longer cursed but blessed. And when God pronounced this terrible judgment and anger against anyone in Israel who would kill one of their own children as an offering to Molech, do you remember how he described the way his attitude would change to that person? He said, I will set my face against that man. But those that are repentant and know him, he lifts up the light of his face. The Lord make his face shine upon you, it says. But those who are cursed, he sets his face against them. His name is removed from them. He doesn't associate with them. He doesn't give them the light of his countenance. In Christ, God delights to have that said. Yahweh, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The grace of God in Christ to his beloved children is our greatest possession. And nothing compares to it. Nothing compares to having Christ as our savior, our righteousness, our satisfaction. Martin Luther wrote a great quotation. He said, when I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Jesus, I don't see how I can be lost. The person trusting in Christ alone has the gracious face of God turned permanently toward them because Christ has already satisfied divine justice. He's already reconciled us to God and continually makes intercession for us. Yes, we can fall under his fatherly discipline as his children when we stubbornly sin against him, but his love for us is as unbreakable as his divine nature in ourselves, we always feel poor in spirit. We're always mourning and unworthy. Why? Because we are poor in spirit, mourning and unworthy. Those and those alone can see Christ in all his saving glory. God shows this to us in order that our eyes would stay fixed on Christ. Stay fixed on Christ. In Christ, we have full and bold, confident access to God the Father in prayer, anytime we desire. We can talk to God anywhere we are. While we're working and driving, you can talk to God. You don't have to bow your head and close your eyes. In fact, please don't do that when you're driving. But you can, you can talk to God while you're driving. We're not among the cursed, but the blessed to have God's name put upon us in his blessed son, Jesus. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians when he spoke of the reason that God saves his children, he said in Ephesians 1.6, he does it to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved one in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. As that great hymn that we started our service with last Sunday morning, how deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. And you're not just a wretch when you first come, you're a wretch when you draw your last breath and arrive at the presence of God. We're always wretches. And we always are dependent entirely upon the blood and righteousness of Christ. And yet we know it was God's good pleasure to do that. God delighted to crush his servant Jesus to bring this to pass. So that we could pray. So that he could put his name upon us. And it was Christ's passion and his delight to do his father's will. To make wretches his treasure. To give them eternal life. And to deliver them from darkness to light. And to assure them that prayer is something they can always do. It's an amazing prophecy. It's quoted many times in the New Testament. Isaiah 53, in verse 10, it says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased God to crush his son. And that Hebrew verb means delighted. He was delighted to crush Christ in our place. And Jesus was delighted and passionate to come and do it. He set his face to go to Jerusalem, like Flint. He went there to go and die. Because he was delighted to make wretches his treasure, to put his name upon them, and to call them to pray to him everywhere they are. All of that, so that Christ would have a church to worship him. If you feel unworthy of God, it's because you are. (laughs) So am I. But in Christ, I can come boldly into the throne of grace and pray, no matter how I'm doing, if I had a good week or a bad week. Those who know Christ and trust only in Him for their salvation know that God did that great work so you could have perfect assurance that you're His child. So that you could know without question, no matter what is going on, you have eternal life and that He delights still to put His name upon you as His own. This is why all the prayers begin with that first petition Hallowed be your name. May your name be glorified. And that word hallowed is the Greek verb hagiazo, to sanctify, to make holy, to treat us holy, to treat with reverence. And it, it's not that we're making God's name more holy or increasing its holiness. It's to treat us holy in the heart of the person praying. That which is already the holiest it could possibly be. And we acknowledge first the one whose name that we are speaking of in prayer, our Father, is the Holy God. His name is holy. Holiness. This absolute moral perfection, this pristine, spotless righteousness, is the attribute of God that ties everything He else, everything else He is, together. The great R.C. Sproul made that point long ago in his book, The Holiness of God. If you've never read The Holiness of God, please do read it. Sproul said, "Only once in sacred Scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession." The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy, or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, 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 but it does say that he is holy, 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 that the whole earth is full of his glory, end quote. And Dr. Sproul goes on to explain that when Isaiah had his grand vision of the Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up on the throne of his glory in Isaiah chapter 6, remember that passage? And the fiery ones, the seraphim, the angels are flying around and these these aren't even fallen angels, these are righteous angels. They have six wings, and with two they cover their faces; with two they cover their feet, and the other two they fly. And they cry back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they just keep calling that back and forth to each other. And Isaiah, when he sees this, it says, "And the posts of the door, were, were, the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke." Isaiah was a prophet of God sent to pronounce judgment. Upon God's people for their sins. And that's what those prophets did. They brought God's charges against the people for their sins. And Isaiah was a prophet. He was a a righteous and a godly man. But when he saw the vision of God and his holiness. All he can think to do now is to pronounce the judgment of God upon himself. Not woe is Israel or woe is Judah. Woe are the nations around you. But rather woe is me. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king Yahweh of hosts. In other words, I am going to die. That Hebrew verb translated undone when he says, woe is me, I am undone. It means destroyed, cut off, ruined. It also can be translated as cease. I cease to exist. Faced with the holiness of God, Isaiah immediately sees what? his sin, the sin of his lips, his words. Can you imagine? If you knew everything that had ever come out of the mouth that is talking to you right now, you probably wouldn't want me standing here. Seeing this vision of the holy, holy, holy Christ on high, and we know that it was Jesus that he saw because it says that in John chapter 12. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus Christ in heaven. It struck that godly man with such terror that all he could think to do was, instead of pronouncing the judgment of God against Israel, he pronounces it on himself. Woe is me, I'm destroyed, I'm cut off, I'm ruined. I am disintegrated. And as I said, one Hebrew lexicon translates that verb as cease. I cease to exist. God in his grace toward the believer Isaiah, however, very quickly assures him. In verse 7, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven, Isaiah. Dear congregation, the reason I emphasize so strongly to you that it's Christ alone that can save you, his cross work in the place of your sins, his righteous obedience in the place of your disobedience, the reason I emphasize that the way I do is because, number one, the Bible does. But the primary reason the Bible does that is there is only one man who has ever lived whose righteousness can withstand that holiness, and that's Jesus. And if you die trusting in anything alongside of him or other than him, you're not going to be saved. Anyone who through the artifices and subtleties of speech tries to place something done in us or by us as decisive in this matter of going to heaven is deceiving you and must be exposed and refuted and discarded as a spokesperson for the gospel of Christ. Anyone who thinks or teaches that their own goodness, their own works, their own obedience will be what decisively rescues them from the God that we see in Isaiah 6, that person is woefully deceived. It is because of the holiness of God that only christ's righteousness has the merit necessary to meet its requirement it's christ alone who has done it and i want to assure everyone here right now and anyone that ever hears this if you arrive in the presence of god trusting that the fruits of your faith in the form of your own pursuit of holiness your own putting sin to death your covenant faithfulness that these things are going to deliver you from the wrath of god at the final judgment you will not go to heaven When believers pray, they've been instructed by the one who saved them and whose righteousness alone justifies them before God to begin with, hallowed be your name, not hallowed be your name and mine a little. Hallowed be your name. That name which is above all names is to be treated by us with the utmost reverence, respect, awe, and affection. This sacred name that is put upon us joyfully and willingly by our Heavenly Father, this name is to be adorned by our lives, by our love for others, by the husband's love and affection for his wife, by the wife's submission to and building up of her husband, by the father's love for his children, by the mother's love for her children, by the siblings' love for their siblings, by the church members' love for their congregation, and by all of our love for neighbor and by everything else we do in life. That name is to be set apart by us now God has graced us to put it upon us the name of Jesus is either exalted or debased by us in our prayers and lives every single day there's nothing that grieves a child of God more than to see Christ's name debased or brought down by their own sins or by the sins of others God redeemed you to be a light to the world around you for believers that's the hardest part about sin isn't it did you feel disgusted with yourself this week I did. It makes God look bad. How well have I represented him this week? Not nearly as well as I should have. It smears the blessed name of Jesus. When we live our lives for the glory of Christ, personal recognition, it fades into insignificance. Who cares if anyone recognizes me? Who cares if anyone recognizes my accomplishments or or anything of the kind? We want the banner of God to be lifted high and for his name to be recognized and glorified by all the world the way it should be. We all cry out with Psalm 115, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Not unto us, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. In our prayers, just like in all of our lives, first and foremost, we come to God to worship him. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are high and exalted, and all the nations of the world are as nothing before you. You do all that you please in heaven and earth, and no one can stay your hand and ask you what you've done. You are the God who destroyed the gods of Egypt by turning the Nile into blood, by the plagues of frogs, lice, the death of their livestock, and even by blotting out the sun in total darkness, thus showing their primary deity, Ra, to be nothing. You struck down their firstborn. You destroyed their armies in the Red Sea. You sent your son, our Lord Jesus, and he has conquered death, hell, and the grave and has fully paid for all of our sins at the cross so that no charge of guilt will ever be brought against us. God, who made beautiful sunshine and sunsets. Anyone see the sunrise this morning? It was glorious to see it, the, the beautiful colors and the clouds. God made the birds of the air, the sunsets and all their beauty, the sunrises, the, the green trees, the animals, the birds. It's glorious. There's no shortage of things to hallow the name of God for. You know, Long ago in Ohio, we had a, an above-ground swimming pool that we inherited from the previous owner. And we used to swim in that pool all the time. And a little bug flew in the pool right next to me. And it was struggling to get out of the water and pulled it up on my hand and just kind of held it up against the, the sunset. And I could see it in great detail. And this little bug, I still, it was some kind of a lightning bug it looked like. But it took its little front arms and was wiping the water off its antenna and wiping the water off its head (laughs) and I yelled at all my kids you must worship the God that made this I have never seen anything more glorious the collective genius of the human race cannot make something like this an animal that can clean its antenna off and then fly away after falling into water There is no shortage of reasons and things that should ennoble our souls to cause us to lift our hearts to God and praise. The problem is we get our eyes and our minds and our lives focused on all these other things. But Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then you'll never run out of things to praise him for. And then everything else will fall in place in the way it's supposed to. Keep the first thing first. God will take care of all of the rest. When everything in all of creation displays the glory of God, it's hard to run out of things to praise and worship God for. He is the God of wonders. Look around you. Look in your backyard. Remember why the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Remember we looked at that verse right at the beginning. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God. Why is God so angry at the human race? Why is His wrath being revealed? Because they don't glorify Him. And we don't glorify Him the way we should. They don't hallow His name. You see, when you pray and address the Almighty and say, Our Father, hallowed be Your name. You're doing what Adam and Eve and every human being that's ever existed on this planet was made to do. You were made by God for communion with Him. To worship Him. To ascribe all glory to His name to forget about yourself and your problems. You exist for His glory. Worship and praise Him. Get that right. Everything else will fall into place. There's no other God who exists. And there's sufficient testimony in creation every moment of the day that God is real and He's worthy of being glorified and they didn't glorify or thank Him. What what do we often do? We don't glorify or thank God either. All men are without excuse. That, that Greek term on apologetus. They are without a defense. They have nothing to say. Every mouth is shut on the day of judgment. The whole world's guilty before God. But, dear congregation, that's just talking about unbelievers. There's so much glory all around them and that they are fearfully and wonderfully made and the, the whole created order testifies to the glory of God and the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork day unto day pours forth speech and night unto night reveals knowledge there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard men owe and are obligated to give glory to God to hallow his name and to thank him for creating them and for every other good gift that he gives them Uh, But I have a question. That's talking about the non-believer and all men in general. How much more is there for the Christian to thank God for? How much more do we have to thank him for? We are going to heaven We have our sins blotted out by the blood of Christ. We have the gift of eternal life. We have the preceptive law keeping of Jesus Christ, our covenant surety and federal representative legally transferred to our account. It is credited, imputed, reckoned to us. We are seen as if we had lived a perfect life before God and therefore we need not have any fear of death at all. And therefore, his holy name must be kept holy by us in our prayers, in our lives, in our homes. When we pray, every time we address our adoptive heavenly father, we begin with worship. Hallowed be your name. I, yes, I have my laundry list. I have a million things I need to ask you for. But first and foremost, I want to praise you as the holy God. And your name must be sanctified and lifted up by me, by my prayers, and in the world. In scripture, and even to this day, in most cultures, Names mean something, in that they communicate something of a person's character or their hoped-for character. People usually choose their children's names because those names communicate something they wish or hope for on behalf of that child. God's name, His covenant name, is Yahweh. I am that I am. Jesus said about himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is the God that we want all men to know, to fear, to adore, to worship, to believe, and to obey. And we all as his people have a zeal to see that name lifted up. And there's another point being made in the first petition. The petition there is in the passive mood because there's a missional element here. Not only are we worshiping God, but we're asking God that his name would be hallowed by every human being on earth. We're praying, Lord, hallowed be your name, not just by me in my prayer right now, but let it be hallowed by every unbeliever whose path I've ever crossed. Glorify your grace by saving all of them. Save the whole world. One theologian said this, this is a request that God would make his self-revelation in Christ and the Bible supreme in the hearts of men. This petition is also left entirely general with the verb in the third person. The point is that we're asking God to hallow his own name to glorify his own name through us and through all things in creation. We are asking him to so govern all things, the affairs of the whole world, social, economic, political, national, and international, the affairs of the church and the world and all things that concern us personally and our whole life in the world in such a way, first of all and above all, his name may receive all glory and praise, End quote. What's so evil about the LGBT issues? that are killing everything left of Bible-believing Christianity in this culture. What is so evil about side B, gay celibate Christianity movement? Not only does it destroy people's lives, and I've corresponded with, with people who have said, yes, I've come out of the side B movement. I understand there's no such thing as sexual orientation. That's a lie. But boy, it sure has caused some close calls. Meaning people are being led into sin by this stuff. But that's not the primary evil of it. Why is it that critical race theory is wrong? Why do we oppose that? It's not if you're white, you're not automatically guilty of a whole slew of historical atrocities that in which you had no hand at all. Why are the false gospels of works of righteousness so evil? Why is the, the message that, that John Piper preaches in the Federal Vision, the word faith teachers like Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, all the rest of them, the cussing pastor Mark Driscoll, who thinks he has a new spiritual gift of pornographic clairvoyance? The fake tongue speaking, the fake healings, the fake slaying in the spirit, and all the fake prophetic words of knowledge, Rome's false gospel, and everything else. Why is that so evil? Because it debases the name of God. It makes God look bad. It drags his name, which is supposed to be hallowed, through a sewer. And it subjects Christ and his perfect saving gospel and his incredible life-changing power to public disgrace. When falsehood masquerades as biblical truth, God is provoked by that because it blasphemes his name. It's taking his name in vain. And when falsehood surrounds us and ruling and teaching elders say and do nothing to vindicate the blessed and holy name of Christ, God is dreadfully provoked by that. The name of Christ must not be treated that way. And we are to go to the defense of the name of God. The name of Jesus must not suffer loss. Remember that great hymn? We sing it sometimes. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. The opening lines of that hymn, Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. Meaning we can't allow the name of Christ and the name of our God to be debased, to be lowered, to be shamed. When we follow our Lord's design for our prayers, our first concern is always the sanctity of the name of God. That blessed name he has put upon us by redeeming us in Christ. If we pray according to Christ's design, hallowed be thy name, when that becomes more a part of our spiritual DNA, when we're less focused on all of our requests and more focused on the glory of God, that is what will animate our hands into action. When that's more of our DNA when we hear Christ's name blasphemed, when we hear him lied about, when we hear his name drugged through a sewer, we'll speak up and vindicate his name by preaching and speaking the truth in the place of those lies. You see, God has never lost any of his life-changing power. He hasn't lost his ability to liberate people from any kind of sin. He never has, he never will. And for anyone to suggest that all of a sudden, in recent years, he suddenly lost his ability to do this, that's just false. That's just a lie. As the larger catechism says in Question 190's answer in the first petition, which is hallowed be thy name. We pray that God would by his grace enable and incline us and others to know, to acknowledge, and highly to esteem him. His titles, attributes, ordinances, word, works, and whatsoever he is pleased to make himself known by. And to glorify him in thought, word, and deed that, we, that he would prevent and remove atheism, ignorance, idolatry, profaneness, and whatsoever is dishonorable to him. And I would just say to you in closing, May God teach us all to have that as our first and primary burden in all of our praying. Whether you're praying throughout the day while you're working on your job or praying in the evening by yourself somewhere. No matter how you pray or where you pray. The first petition, the first duty we always have, regardless of what we may need to be crying out to God for, is to hallow His name to worship and praise His holy name, and to pray that that name would never suffer disgrace or loss in the world or by us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, first, we praise and worship Your holy name, and we thank You that Jesus bled and died for the ways that we fail to hallow Your name. And we look to His shed blood and His righteousness in the place of our weak and often sinful prayers and requests. Help us to be more God-centered, more cross-centered, more holiness-centered in our prayers, and to worship you and to hallow your name when we address you in prayer as our Lord taught us to. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.